Welcome back to our special four-part series dedicated to search and rescue. This is episode four and the last in the series. So if you haven't listened to episodes one through three, you'll wanna go back and start there. Most search and rescue personnel don't wanna be referred to as heroes, but as recreationalists, we often voice that title upon them. There's a selflessness required to take to the mountains in all manner of poor conditions to help a stranger find their way home. There's sacrifice too. And as much as we'd like to believe it, the heroes of our stories aren't invincible. They're regular people like us. Skilled, yes, but just as susceptible to the perils of nature. Fallible, mortal. It's the hope of all search and rescue teams to never face that mortality on the job. But sometimes the danger is inescapable and the effects can last for decades. I made a decision to survive. When you're in that survival mode. The, the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. Lisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. My name is Joe Lentini, and I live in Conway, New Hampshire, in the heart of the White Mountains. I am a climber. I've been a climber for, uh, I hate to admit it, but a little over 50 years now. And I've been a professional climbing guide for 47 of those years. I got into climbing because a childhood friend of mine from my hometown asked me if I wanted to go. I said yes. And the exhilaration sort of like, ooh, that was fun. And I went back again and again and again. I obviously got to love it. It was my life. If you're climbing back then in the White Mountains, there's no gyms. So in the winter, you learn how to ice climb and do mountaineering. And then that turned into week-long trips and month-long trips. And I lived an absolutely wonderful dirtbag climber life. I lived in a friend's garage in Colorado for many months with a friend living on brown rice and climbing every day. When Joe was in his early 20s, he got a call from a friend inviting him back east to guide at a new climbing school at Eastern Mountain Sports in New Hampshire. By the time he was 25, Joe was running the school and had become deeply involved in the New Hampshire climbing community. Early on in this, I became a member of the Mountain Rescue Service. That sort of went along with if you were a hardcore climber or a guide and you had demonstrated in front of other people who saw you out on the hill that you knew what you were doing, that you were able to handle tough conditions, that you were able to do what needed to be done. It was a small group of professional climbers and hardcore climbers. We all worked together. And then a few years into that, I became a team leader. Today, Joe is still a volunteer and team leader with MRS. During the late 70s and 80s, the Mountain Rescue Service was made up of a small group of professional or serious climbers who primarily worked together at the climbing school or local sporting goods store, met at the crag during their off time, and spent their nights throwing darts and swapping tails at the pub. 
One of those climbers and MRS volunteers was 28-year-old Albert Dow. Albert Dow, who was working in the MS retail store, he was just an exceptional climber, and he was an exceptionally good human being. We used to hang out together, do things together, and climb together some. Come along January 1982, I'm doing my normal climbing routine. I'm guiding every weekend. One day ascents of Mount Washington are immensely popular this time of year. I had three clients that I was taking up to the summit of Mount Washington. There was bad weather coming in. Most likely, we would not be able to summit. Popularly known for the world's worst weather, Mount Washington stands a modest 6,200 feet tall, but has recorded some of the highest wind speeds ever measured on Earth. Several weather patterns collide on Mount Washington, creating a literal perfect storm environment where weather can move in quickly. More than 160 people have died on the peak since 1849, most due to hypothermia. It wasn't so beautiful because visibility was fairly poor. The storm was getting worse, so now we've been traveling for probably about close to three hours. But I I say to my clients, this is as far as we're going to go. We got down, everybody was happy, and I head home. While Joe and his clients were making their way off the mountain, another pair of climbers were still out in the worsening storm. That night, 20-year-old Jeff Batzer and 17-year-old climbing prodigy Hugh Herr were due back at a backcountry cabin they were using as base camp while ice climbing on the mountain. When the two did not return, the cabin's caretaker radioed the mountain rescue service. Joe got a call alerting him of the situation that evening. We're hoping these people are going to come walking back in in the middle of the night, but we don't know that and we have to be ready. Get up in the morning, off I go. Because I'm a team leader, I go to Pinkham Notch and I meet with some fish and game and forest service and some other team leaders and we we come up with a plan. The cabin where the two young climbers were staying offered access to one of the premier ice climbing spots in the country, Huntington's Ravine. Four teams were sent out to search. Some searched the base of the climb as Joe's team made their way up the Mount Washington Auto Road in a snowcat to search from above. And it took us up to treeline when then we set out on foot. And our goal was to get up to and to search over the top of Huntington Ravine and then to maybe lower down on ropes. It's probably zero, 10 below. And because of the fresh snow and the high winds, it is almost impossible to see at times. We went for quite a ways for quite a long time. We started to get knocked down and we realized that was it. We couldn't go any further. There there was no point. We weren't gonna make it to the top of Huntington Ravine, and one of us could very likely get hurt. The rescuers didn't know that the climbers had reached the top of Huntington's Ravine the previous afternoon. Despite heavy snow, the climbers attempted a quick dash for the summit 500 meters away, leaving behind their overnight gear, map, and compass. Strong winds blew them off course while descending, leaving them and everyone else unaware of their location. With the rescue effort unable to continue in the blinding snow, Joe and his team turned around. It would be the Lost Climbers' second night on the mountain. We went home for the night, having a plan to meet the next morning. The group again split into four teams of two. 
Rescuers Michael Hartrick and Albert Tao would check the ravine again from below. Joe's team again headed up in the snowcat to search a different area. We go up as high as we can and then start to traverse across, being very careful of the snow. We're taking turns leading going up and one of us will climb up, set up an anchor in the rock or ice and manipulate the rope for the next person. Well, we got up probably 300 feet or more in the gully itself. I was leading and I just came to a section of wind slab. In steep enough terrain, wind slabs can be incredibly dangerous. Because they're often denser than the layers of snow underneath, wind slabs pose a severe threat of avalanche. We looked at it and I just said, we can't do this. We cannot get up this section. It's just not safe. So we went back down. Albert and Michael had seen tracks at the top of Odell's gully and they wanted to follow those. The tracks found by Michael and Albert were indeed made by the missing climbers two days prior. As the rescue team would later learn, Batser and her had followed a partly concealed stream the wrong way down the slope as they tried to descend and escape the storm, rationalizing down was still the best option. 17-year-old her had slipped in twice. Although Batser was able to pull him out and offer him dry wool pants, her's legs had begun to freeze. They sought shelter in some spruce branches by a rock, embracing each other for warmth, their legs intertwined, battling the cold. This is where they were huddling while Joe and his team searched on the other side of the mountain. We got back down to the bottom of the ravine where the snowcat was, and we are gonna drive down where the trail junction is and pick up Michael and Albert. And I have to tell you, there's a sense of relief. It's scary. Not that you're like visibly shaking and afraid, but you're constantly aware that this is not a safe place. The conditions are really harsh and you're just relieved to be out of there. And then all of a sudden, the radio crackles and we hear Michael's voice just yelling, avalanche, avalanche. And the world sometimes just flips a switch. The world changes. Brad, who's driving the snowcat, just accelerates, takes us down, swings around, up into Tuckerman's. We send one group down to a first aid cache, which is very nearby, to get our avalanche probes. We start to head up the trail. Up over on our left, when we're partway up, we can actually see the toe of the debris. We cut over to there. Michael had cleared snow from around his head and got an arm free, and that's how he got the radio out. A number of staffers from the Appalachian Mountain Club who had been on the mountain were already at the scene assisting. And they were beginning to dig him out. We did what's called a hasty search where you go across the snow and you look for any signs and we didn't see anything. Then you take your avalanche probes, which are long aluminum tubes that you push down into the snow to feel if there's anybody there. Time is critical when digging someone out from an avalanche. Within the first 15 minutes, the chance of survival is around 90%, but it drops significantly thereafter. Every passing minute drastically reduces the likelihood of a successful rescue due to the risk of suffocation. We get in a line. Somebody in front stands there and says, take a step, probe, and you push the probe down and you feel. I'm gonna say 10, 15 feet, and all of a sudden on my left, someone yells, I've got him. 
we head on over, grab our shovels. We know we're gonna be digging here, so we get in a line and we take turns. Digging through avalanche-packed snow is grueling and unpredictable. The snow is dense and heavy, often feeling like concrete, making progress slow. It requires immense physical effort and the structure of the snow can shift suddenly, posing additional risk to both the rescuer and the victim. Somebody starts to dig. You go at 100% of your energy for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, then you just literally drop off to the side. The next person takes your place and you just dig. Oh, we eventually, we can see him. We can see his head. Albert's body was lying at an angle under the snow. The team continued to excavate, clearing the snow from around his face. Michael had been dug out and been taken down, so it was just Albert. And we can see that he's not breathing. We're not getting a pulse. We dig him out. We put him on the snow, try to get a breath in. We start CPR. Then we start to see he's hit something. He's got damage underneath his chin, his neck. It's pretty clear to us at this point that when he got swept down through the trees that he had caught something and had probably broken his neck. <sighs> I have to say, so many years later, I can, I can close my eyes and I can see the team members around me, it, it just, we're just, we're just shocked. You can't process it. He's dead. We transport him, we put him in a litter. So we're going to get him to the hospital, we're going to do everything we can. But we're pretty clear, nothing's going to help. We put him in the snow cat and we take him down the mountain. We get to the bottom... There's a lot of commotion. There's reporters. I jump off the, the and I jump off the machine and run to my car because I know that somebody has to tell Joni, Albert's fiance, what's just happened. And I get in my car and I drive to where they live. I see her car stopped, and another friend of ours has gotten there right before me. And I get out of my car in the middle of the road, and she's just screaming, and I'm crying. We have to deal with the aftermath. We have to go on. We have to process this. I mean, I've just seen one of my friends die. Alongside his grief, Joe felt a lingering sense of anger at the two missing climbers who Albert had sacrificed his life for. I don't know these people that are missing. I know that they're two young climbers from Pennsylvania who have gone up and gotten lost, and now Albert's dead because of them. Meanwhile, her and Batzer felt their death was imminent. Her would later say in an interview that they made the decision to stop huddling for warmth, reasoning the quicker they died, the better. When all seemed lost for the climbers, a young woman employed at the Pinkham Notch camp was snowshoeing when she spotted some tracks in the snow. She followed them and found the two missing young men. Her was near death from the bitter cold and his legs frozen solid into the mid-calf. Batzer was badly frostbitten. A New Hampshire National Guard helicopter braved the winds to lift them out. Everybody processes things differently. I just feel it. I'm not going to try to hide it. Nothing's going to make it better. 
No one's going to say he's gone to a better place. I'm just going to feel it. I have nightmares. But life goes on. I'm never going to be over this. It's just something that's going to live with me. And that's okay. That's okay. I've lost a friend, and I'm going to remember that friend. And that's okay. It's just part of my life. It's part of who I am. The climbers were facing the consequences of their mistakes as well. Her had severe frostbite on both lower legs. Six weeks later, both of his legs were amputated six inches below the knee. Batzer eventually lost his right thumb and fingers and his left leg a few inches below his knee and the toes on his right foot. Her was devastated by the loss he had caused and the loss of his legs. He was quoted in Men's Fitness saying, quote, I thought it would be an insult to the memory of Albert Dow to pity myself and stay in a wheelchair. Out of this came an enormous will to walk again, to climb again, end quote. After graduating high school, Herm moved to North Conway, the town where his accident happened, to climb. He began pioneering and using artificial limbs he modified himself for the sport. Now living in the same community, Joe began to learn more about the young man his friend had died for. He's an exceptional climber. He's not just a person who doesn't know what they're doing. He's, he's 17 years old, but he's just a phenomena. I'm still pretty angry, but then the more I find out about him, I realize he's really, he's a better climber than me, but he's no different than me. I looked at Jeff Batzer and Hugh Hare. I realized that it wasn't stupid on their part. They simply pushed a little bit too hard I couldn't hate this person. So one day, I'm walking down the street and there was a a coffee shop. And I saw a couple of climbers sitting there. One of them was in shorts and he had pipes for legs. And I realized how astute I am. That must be you here. And there was a lot of emotion. But I walked over and I held my hand out and said, hi, I'm Joe Lentini. He sort of backed up a little bit. I think he was a little nervous. I just wanted to say hi. There's a lot of emotions wrapped up in that, and they're they're contradictory emotions at times. But again, I always go back to, it could have been me. It literally could have been me. As Joe journeyed towards empathy for the climbers, they too found their paths were forever changed. Batzer experienced his closest connection to God while trapped under Mount Washington's rocks. This pivotal moment led him to become a pastor, focusing on counseling individuals facing crisis. Her channeled the same drive and dedication from climbing into academics. He earned a master's in mechanical engineering at MIT and completed a PhD in biophysics at Harvard. Today, Her is a professor at MIT where he engineers bionic limbs that emulate the function of natural limbs. Time Magazine coined Dr. Her the leader of the bionic age. He's also an outspoken advocate for the use of technology to overcome physical limitations, and his work continues to drive innovation in the field of prosthetics and biomechanics. From those fateful days trapped on the mountain, the lives of Dr. Hugh Herr and Jeff Batzer took a profound turn. And while Albert Dow paid the ultimate price that day, it's evident neither man has forgotten, each charting a new course influenced by his sacrifice. I look back, and the anger was misplaced. I understand that. But I was overwhelmed, and I was pretty damn young. 
But eventually I got over it and I saw that this is an incredible human being and I am very, very sad that I lost my friend. But Hugh made a mistake that is not different than what a lot of us have done. We just got away with it. Wrapping up our search and rescue series, we're reminded of the enduring impact these individuals have on lives and communities. Search and Rescue is risking it all on daring missions. They're the unsung heroes behind the scenes, handling paperwork, training hard, and driven by a genuine desire to help. From rescuing lost hikers to all the logistics required to be ready to answer the call, SAR teams forge a legacy of bravery and compassion with ripples that extend far beyond the challenging moments they encounter. Thank you to all the members of Search and Rescue, and especially those who we talked to for this series. Thanks for joining us for this special series on Search and Rescue. We'll be back at the end of January with more Out Alive. This episode of Out Alive was produced and written by me, Louisa Albanese, along with writing and editing by Zoe Gates. Thank you to Joe Lentini for your time and for your service to your community. If you have a survival story you want to share, you can email me at outalive at outsideinc.com. Out Alive is made possible by the members of Outside Plus. Learn about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com slash pod plus.